You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm Simon. Hey, we got three. Hey. <clears throat> Next week we'll be back to two. So does that mean I can nap now? No, it doesn't mean you can nap now. <laughs> we won't be back to two next week. Well, hopefully. No, that's the only reason. Fingers crossed we'll be three next week as well. Um, I guess, and this wasn't planned, as I've said before, I wasn't intending to do ten top tens, but we are doing the tenth top ten. So this is the last top ten. This is the last. Okay. Well, I say that. Oh, yes. Eh, this is officially the last of the top tens. Oh, okay. Oh. Uh huh. I got something else planned for about two weeks' time, just in case of emergencies that need contingencies. Okay. Something fun. Oh, that would make a change. <laughs> Do you want to take that nap? <laughs> <laughs> this is. I guess this is the big one. This is the top 10 classic series stories. Mm. And despite the fact that the new series has been on, I guess this is the one that we're all perhaps a bit more interested in just for the sake of nostalgia and stuff. Mm-hmm. Classics, despite what you might think of the new series, classic series, let's face it, when the toys were coming out from character options, it was always the classic series toys you were most excited oh, by. Yeah. And I guess we've got a little bit of that here. So we had votes from approximately twice, if not three times as many people as we normally do on this poll. Blimey. So despite the fact that there were 160-something stories that people could vote for, and they voted for, well, the better part of half of them, certainly more than a third of them, Okay. Uh, we did get enough votes so that even though the spread is a bit thinner than it usually is. Yes. We've got enough votes that we have a very defined top 20. Excellent. So I'm going to run down the top 20. We'll do the okay. we'll do the 11 to 20 positions in brief, and then we'll look a bit more in-depth at the top 10. Right. But before yeah. we do... Dun, 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 dun. Oh, you haven't started, so... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were a yellow pearl kind of guy. Don't be disgusting. Do it, Simon. What? Yellow the, pearl? Yeah. That one. Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that the shaft feet? Have we had that this the, conversation the full, before? Phil Lynott and Medjur, wasn't it? <clears throat> was it? Yeah. Oh. No, that was Tears for Fears, wasn't it? All right, we'll move on. <laughs> I've got three film reviews to do. Going to do them very briefly then. Okay. Okay, actually, War for the Planet of the Apes. Ooh. I got a review copy of that. That's a great film. But it's... Um, also, fair. Have you, either of you seen it? No, I've seen the I've first seen all two. the films leading up to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair. Oh, so is this? It is. Is this the recent one? Yes. Okay. Just come out. Yes. Okay. I don't know whether I can. On Blu-ray, that is. Yeah, it's actually it will have been out for a week by the time this podcast comes out. Mm. Can I do spoilers then? I, I think you'd avoid spoilers because it's too recent for. 
Okay, so well, I did spoilers in the review, but then, uh, but then I was very careful to do spoilers after a fashion that wouldn't actually spoil things. Okay, uh, effectively, this film very definitely nails on the idea that this has been a prequel trilogy. Right. Okay. I won't say any more than that. Um, It's got some very interesting. uh, Well, basically, it's the story of um, Moses, Mm -hmm. but done with. Apes. Mm. It's excellent. I can't say any more than that. People know what Planet of the Apes is all about, and especially the last three, so it's a great film. Let's do 20 down to 11, shall okay. we? Okay. <laughs> well, is nobody going to do this? Oh, never mind. That's the wizard. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Paul Hardcastle. Are you like a aficionado of Top of the Pops themes or no, something? Just, well, they were with us for a long time, weren't they, each time? I can't remember any of them. And before that was, um, was a cover of Led Zeppelin, wasn't it, before that? <clears throat> Which is probably the one you were thinking Yeah. Yeah. Led Zeppelin's only single. Is it really? Yeah, Led Zeppelin never released singles. They oh, only wow. ever released albums, and they only ever released... That as a single, I'm assuming because of the top of the pops. No, no, it was a different version. It wasn't Led Zeppelin. No, I know, but oh, I see. As a right, I'm taking. I'm wondering if that was why. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, prior to that, they'd only ever done albums, and that is, I think, to date, still their only single release. Wow, amazing, isn't it? Mm. Right in twentieth place, and I didn't do the spread for eleven to twenty, but I did do. The percentage at 11 and at 20, just so we could see where it was going. Right. You don't really find this boring, Matt. You're just making it up. The percentages? Yeah. I just don't understand. Well, Evil of the Daleks came in 20th place and got 3.8% of the points it could possibly get. That's a good result. Um, Yeah, it's like way off what came first, Mm. but... Considering that nearly 70 stories got folks in total, Evil of the Daleks did pretty well, really. Yeah. And considering there's only one episode surviving, mm. that's, you know... Yeah, there is actually an animated um, version of Episode 7 in circulation. Is there really? Yeah, I mean, well, if you search down through YouTube, you can find animated versions right. of every missing episode. Yes. In very sort of... Or animated versions it. of Sharda that aren't going to be released. <laughs> I was going to say, give it time, eventually it will yeah. appear on national television. Well, by sheer coincidence, <laughs> yeah. the episode 7 of Evil of the Daleks that's in circulation is the Ian Levine. Oh, okay. okay. Ian Levine, I don't know why it was just episode 7 he got done, but he got episode 7 of Evil of the Daleks done. Okay. So, yeah, there are there is that somewhere out there. Mm. And people can probably find yes. it. For a long time, it was my. I always it was definitely for a long time in my top five stories. I became a little bit obsessed by the audio version. Oh, really? The Tom Bacon narrated audio oh, that version. One, yeah, yeah, I really liked it, and maybe maybe that added to it. There's a sort of mystique to it. Yeah, and the, the sort of in audio, the pictures are better, so there's a sort of darkness to it, and Troughton's voice in audio is quite kind of moody and. And it's mysterious. It's um, it's a funny story because it's got some really sort of iconographic stuff in it. Mm. But by the same token, it's also a bit silly. Oh yes. But then, yeah. like I was saying last week, Doctor Who does silly well. 
<laughs> when it's doing silly seriously yeah. or doing serious stuff um being silly shall we go on to in 19th place is um the silurians okay yeah which is an excellent story really yes yeah i think it probably goes on a bit too long <coughs> but the the um you know the bit in the middle where it goes off and has a couple of episodes about the, the plague. Bit. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, and yeah. that breaks it up. The thing about the Silurians is, if it wasn't for that, there'd be some really nice character stuff. But it would all basically be stuck in like three or four sets. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, the second episode also is nice, where it's got the location stuff on the moor. Yeah, I mean, Inf- Inferno sort of blends the location and the sets a bit better than the Silurians. The Silurians, it's obviously... So we're in the sets this week, and then we're on location, then we're across the moor. I'm talking about so Silurians. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Oh, I'm, just, I'm just comparing it to two other stories in the season. Yeah, yeah. No, but Silurians is a good one. And, of course, part of the reason why the Silurians gets a lot of love is because of the novelisation. I'm going to say that, yeah. Something that sticks with people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Real landmark episode as well. Kind of um, the, the Pertwee era kind of finding its feet quite early on, really. <clears throat> it's probably the, the first time it's actually, the Pertwee era is actually grounded. I mean, Spearhead from Space was, was sort of new, but Silurians is the one that sort of fixes the format. Mm. I well, know, I was like, temporarily. yeah. Well, I was just talking to somebody about the Stitches in Time book that mm. will eventually happen. Yeah. Um, and Silurians is one of the essays in there. Stitches in Time is about stories that set or consolidated precedents. Yeah. And I said the Silurians was the one that consolidates the unit yes. story. Yeah. Because Invasion introduces the concepts. Spearhead from Space introduces it as a regular part of the format. And the Silurians is the first story where you get unit as an ongoing thing, as opposed to something that's just turned up. And it's really the first story where the Doctor travels to an adventure by car. Because, I mean, Spearhead from Space, he obviously drives around, but he's still, it still starts with the TARDIS landing. So this is the first story. And then it reaches a sort of zenith with the, the demons where the TARDIS doesn't appear at all, and he's just he's just a scientist. In 18th place, yeah. I don't know if this is a bit lower than I thought it might be, but in 18th place is the Ark in Space. Oh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's still in the top 20. Yeah, yeah. Ark in Space is one of the, for me, when I was a kid, the book especially, because I had vague but only very vague memories of the TV version, but the book was just one of the ones that, the story and when it came out on VHS that was that the was, one where I I was yeah. a late bloomer with the Ark in Space mm. and when it came out on VHS I thought this is bloody brilliant and it was just one that you watched over and over again mm. I think I was an even later bloomer so I wasn't prepped by the target novelisation because really? I hadn't read it so when it came out on VHS I still preferred Pyramids of Mars for a long long time and it was only yeah. it was only later that I realised how sort of I mean, Tom Baker's performance and the claustrophobic sets and and the way it's sort of sort of universally acted mostly with kind of real sort of dedication. So everybody's taking it really seriously. Um, <clears throat> in 17th place is, staying in the same sort of era, The Deadly Assassin. Oh. 
Yeah, Deadly Assassin's a funny one. That's it's, why I like it. Yeah, it's it is really good. Mm. But it's also one of those ones that sort of it's a bit sticks out like a sore thumb. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> that's good. Uh, I it's a real maverick episode, isn't it? It's, it's I quite do know odd. some people who hate it. Well, that's yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah, fam- yeah. famously whole, people the whole my might thing disliked it. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. No. I mean, even these days. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I mean, mean, but, but it, I mean, it opens so the the same thing that people hate. Like, does Lee dislike it when the the fourth wall's broken with sort of like place oh, like title the, yeah. cards or yeah, voiceovers yeah, yeah. or something like that? Mm. But that's exactly what that, the assassin does. So it yeah. has this kind of portentous scroll at the beginning that you can quite easily almost as sort of fan part of your brain kind of edits that out. When you think about it, but then you watch it, you just does the TV oh movie God. do the same thing? Then you don't like the voiceover at the start there. Or... Oh my God! I like oh no, it. you're okay. I, no, no, no. I was talking. Oh, about, I, I, thought was, people... I thought it was Lee who disliked that kind oh, of. Right. So there's oh, some... he likes it on the new. He dislikes it on the new series. Right. There were some people that he probably gives out your Deadly time. Assassin a pass for being him to <laughs> Holmes. Well, yeah, yeah. But it is very, very strange story. But again, acted with sort of complete dedication. Yeah, so well, nothing, yeah. well, that was what Hinchcliffe and Holmes did, mm. and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. But yeah, one of the things they did was they just played everything dead straight and down mm. the line. So as hokey as some of those stories were, and yeah. some of them are incredibly hokey, they all were done deadly seriously and uh, got away with it. Um, in sixteenth place is Earthshock. Oh. <laughs> Really? <laughs> I don't like Earthshock. I like I, it. It's probably I my favourite Davison story. I find it difficult to get through. I mean, the first episode's all right and sort of tense. But then, and I don't know, the, the next, how many episodes is it? Is it it's actually four altogether. Is it four? Yeah. The next three episodes seem to be just Cybermen walking back and forth. And then the it's next very grey. I just remember it being very, very grey. Yeah. And, and yeah. It is, after the first episode, it is the archetypal <laughs> let's run around in some corridor story. Yeah. Mm. It, yeah. But, you know... There are some nice moments in there, but you've got to look for them. It's got atmosphere, and it's and it looks like money's been spent on it, mm. in part. But money hasn't been spent on the script. <laughs> because, oh, yeah, yeah. Time Lord plot, to, or is that... Well, yeah, but it came out of... Um, <clears throat> Eric Sayward had just written The Visitation. Yeah. And after a year with Christopher H. Bidmead and then six months of not really having a script editor, John Nathan Turner was like fishing around like crazy just trying to find any script he could put mm. on the screen. So after Eric Sayward had done The Visitation, which was the one that was the most <coughs> traditional Doctor Who story that they'd had on screen in years, yes. it was just a fate complete mm. that he'd come back and do more yeah. and uh, I've said it before the visitation is just like a folk memory of the time warrior that Eric Sayward typed up mm-hmm. and then Earthshock is Eric Sayward actually sitting down and being able to look at some old Doctor Who stories and uh, taking what he wanted out of them and saying right in that case it's, not, it's been 20 years let's put this back on screen so if the, rem- if the visitation's a remake of um of uh, the Time Warrior, Earthshock's kind of a remake of all sorts of things from the invasion to the moon base and all sorts of stuff like that, really. I wonder if it's a <clears throat> direct line from people seeing it live 
at the time. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine there's many people voting for it who didn't see it live because there's that whole surprise ending. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Well, two surprises, isn't it? Yeah. And the 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 musicless titles at the end. Yeah. Which is quite ironic because, you know, it allows room for the audience to cheer. As the, <laughs> as the credits roll. They can just sound party poppers throughout the nation. In fifteenth place. Sorry, Australia. <clears throat> yeah, we'll have none of that around here, thank you very much. Okay. We've had enough of that for the past couple of weeks. In fifteenth place, on the power of a Blu-ray release. Power of the Daleks. Is that on the power of a Blu-ray release or would that... That's always done well, It's actually. always done well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, power and evil are always sort of vying with each other. For, for... I've still not watched that. Uh, I've tried. It's sitting in an envelope. <laughs> it's sitting in an envelope at home getting it for Christmas. Oh, wow. Oh. Ooh, okay. I well, think evil... I'll wait for it to really drop in price and say, right, that's cheap enough that somebody could buy me that now. Okay, I think Evil of the Daleks is by far the more interesting story. Yes, and but Power of the Daleks has got that central conceit of the Daleks pretending to be good. I think if I could see it, and not just animated, but if I could see the actual story, I think I'd prefer Power of the Daleks to Evil of the Daleks. But listening to it, I think Evil of the Daleks has more has more character interest and there's more dialogue, interesting dialogue well, with the, the Victorian stuff as well. Yeah, the thing Whereas is, Power of the Daleks, it's got sex. this subplot about this rebellion in the base, but it's such a basic subplot. Hmm. And, it, and you know, there's this mystery in the first couple of episodes about who's the traitor, but the mystery isn't played out and you're never given sort of red herrings about who it might be. Hmm. <clears throat> and in the end, I don't think there's even like a reveal. It just sort of turns out to be somebody that it had to be all the time. Yes. I th- the Dalek part of the story in Power of the Daleks is really good. Hmm. The rest of Power of the Daleks is a bit ho-hum. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 14th place, something that's not ho-hum is Horror of Fang Rock. Ooh. It's grown on me. I really like horror. Horror of Fang Rock is Sunday afternoon comfort Doctor Who. Hmm. It's Terence Sticks characters, and while I'd never find Terence Sticks characters remotely believable, what I do find with Terence Sticks characters is they're usually terribly entertaining to watch. Hmm. So you stick about eight of them in an enclosed space hmm. and uh, kill them off one by one by somebody who's an alien in disguise, it's a winning formula, isn't it? It's the thing from another world set in a lighthouse. Much like his novelisations are an easy read, aren't they? Yeah, and Horror of Fang Rock's an easy watch. The only thing that puts me off Horror of Fang Rock, and it's not Horror of Fang Rock's fault, but it feels like that tipping point where the show gets rubbish. Mm-hmm. It's just that moment, just between uh, Talons of Wen Chiang, just just before it starts going downhill. But and I can Fang feel Rock it is, when I'm watching it. Yeah. They're sort of clinging on. They're just about clinging on to the previous era. But well, Horror of Fang Rock was, of course, famously made in Birmingham instead mm. of London. The only yeah. one prior to uh, 2000, well, 1996, that mm. was made outside London. So it's got lots of people behind the scenes pulling out all the stops mm-hmm. to try and prove that they can do as good a job as London can, yeah. and probably doing a better one, frankly. <laughs> Because they are putting all the extra effort in. Um, In 13th place, and this one could easily have been in the top 10, Terror of the Zygons. 
I think it's a terrible story. I think it's so well done. You don't notice how terrible a story it is. <laughs> uh, when I say terrible, I mean it's hokey as all hell. And the last episode is well, diabolical. So, so that, the rest of it is just brilliant. That last, the last ten minutes are basically just it just sort of falls apart yeah. into a kind of a spongy mess. But you don't care by the time you've got to that point. The production design on it and the acting in it mm. and the dialogue. Mm-hmm. One of the great yeah. things about the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, and I think this is what sets the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era apart, is that the dialogue is just so memorable. And part of that is due to the script and part of it is due to the delivery. And it's and the Doctor's dialogue as well. It's not just... So in the past in Doctor Who, you get sort of characters around the Doctor that have Interesting things to say, yeah. But... With Hinchcliffe and Holmes, they actually, with something John Pertwee didn't really get interesting dialogue. He he just he was just charming, and he had moments of charm. I know. That, I that, well, we might discover something yeah. different in a little minute or two. Right. But but Tom Baker did get that kind of. I just think John Pertwee didn't deliver it. Irony in a. I don't think Pertwee delivered it in a particularly um, interesting way. I don't think he had. Um, the the right kind of charisma for mm. that kind of dialogue. Mm. So, although I don't think he's a bad doctor, I think he's a good doctor, I think he's very entertaining, I don't think he delivers the dialogue in such a way that... There's, 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 yeah, it's not as warm. As Terence Dick there's... says, you could give any doctor's dialogue to any other doctor and it's all in how what the actor does with it. Yeah, but I can't imagine um, Pertwee doing the Homo sapiens... Speech. He gets surprisingly similar stuff. He does the homily about the hermit on the mountain in mm-hmm. Pyram- in um, Planet of the Daleks. He yeah, gets loads of speeches. But there's quite a far distance between the daisiest daisy and the homo hum- sapiens speech. Or Only in the delivery, I think. I don't know. I think there's something slightly more cynical about Tom Baker's dialogue. I think there is a definite difference. Well, there are. Um... I mean, it is Robert. I mean, <clears throat> it's Robert Holmes. I but, think yeah, yeah, but Robert Holmes yeah. was and writing it is, he's for got a distinctive Pertwee. voice, but I don't think he uses it with the Pertwee stories. I can't, you know. Well, oh, I don't know. I I think it's there. I think it's in. I think it's in the delivery. I'm okay. going to talk about this when we get to number one. Okay. Um, in twelfth place, and this should have been in the top ten, and I don't know why it's not, but it is quite way outside the top ten when we get down to the spread. In 12th place, Pyramids of Mars. Why is that not in the top 10? Mummies in an English country garden. (laughs) It was my number one. Yeah, (laughs) it's just such a... Again, it's a hokey as all hell story and it completely falls apart at the end. But Hinchcliffe and Holmes were all about the journey. I mean, for me, it's tied in completely because I grew up maybe 10 minutes drive away from where it was filmed. So that kind of landscape... And the the woodland, I've sort of, well, I've been there. My dad used to teach in the school opposite Stargrove, pretty much. Well, this is, So I've I've kind of got that sort of, that kind of visceral connection with it. Mm -hmm. And it was the first video I ever got. So for a long time, it was the only Doctor Who I ever watched repeatedly. (laughs) And this is what Doctor Who does really well, sticks monsters in the English countryside. Yeah. That's kind of what it was famous for, really. Yeah. And, and again, know. Tom Baker gets, and it's not just his delivery, he gets really dark, cynical dialogue. Well, he gets get, a couple of instances of it. Yeah. 
And the rest of it is uh, by association, really. Maybe. Oh, yeah, but he does get a couple of instances of it, for sure. And uh, people say, why is Peter Capaldi's doctor the way he is? Just take a look at Pyramids and Mars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In 11th place... Is that it for Pyramids and Mars? We well, should, I said we were going to we whip could, through should, 20 to 11. The whole podcast your number one, not everyone yeah, else's. Yeah. Okay, we can, we can move on. We can move on. I, don't, al- I don't blame the place. There's obviously a lot of affection for it, though, for it to get that yeah, high, yeah. So. In 11th place, and this is 9.4%, and again, the split is that stuff that's over 10% is in the top 10, and the stuff that's outside the top 10 is less than 10%. Uh, just seems to be the way it works out. But in 11th place is the five doctors. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's better than Pyramids of Mars. More, more beloved. Yes. Yeah. But this is yeah. not, yeah. This is not oh, a vote yeah. of what do you think is the best Doctor <coughs> Who story. This is a vote of what is your favourite Doctor Who story. And the five doctors, yeah. like Horror of Fang Rock, <laughs> has got some lovely dialogue. I, I, yeah, I remember it. And oddly, it's connected to... So, um, Five Doctors was the very first thing I remember being recorded off the television so my parents had a video recorder and so for a brief moment we had not the whole episode because video recorders didn't work like that in those days we had like fuzzy images followed by something in the middle that you could tell was an episode and then fuzzy images but there was still sort of the excitement of, of having that stored I think. I, I remember love, it being on and... I really love the soundtrack yeah that particular soundtrack. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a minor miracle that it works as well it does, really. If you think about how much you um, juggle. <clears throat> an isolated soundtrack on the second DVD release. There was an isolated soundtrack on the first. Oh, is there? Okay. Yeah. I've got both. It's a soundtrack like with those the sort of flugelhorn. Yeah. Yeah. Almost, yeah. almost like sort of Christopher Nolan. Quite, quite sort of, yeah. I, I really love that bit where he's, they're on... Um, the harp? Yeah, uh, where they're on the... Peaceful Planet, what's it called? Oh, oh Ivor Ryan. Ivor Ryan, yeah. that's it. There's a lovely bit in the yeah. background yeah. when he does that thing about co- cosmic angst. That whole sequence I love, mm. the dialogue yeah. and everything. It's Five, good, I like it. Five Doctors is a story that you can just bong on and enjoy from start to finish. Mm. I think I've got a duff copy of it on DVD. Did they release a duff copy on DVD? What do you mean? Like on a, a re-release that didn't work or there was something dodgy about the soundtrack or something. I don't know. No, I, I mean, it was the first that, DVD no. release, wasn't it? Because yeah, it had so a I got it and then cover. I replaced it and gave my first DVD to a friend and then kept the Duff DVD. Okay. I don't know. So did, I, you print, did you not print it out? They gave a, there was a PDF to download on the BBC website, wasn't there, to replace oh, the cover? Oh, okay. Oh, really? Was so it? it matched all the others? Yeah. Oh, no, because I wasn't. You know, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, before we get into the top ten, then I'm going to do another film review. Um, the L-shaped room, which is from the early sixties, it's one of the sort of British new wave. It's done by Brian Forbes, who did Whistle Down the Wind. It is compared to some of the other new wave films, a bit old-fashioned and not quite as new wavy as new wave stuff gets. It's about a pregnant French girl who takes a room in a boarding house, and to be honest, although it deals with some of the stuff about being a single woman pregnant in 1960s London when you weren't supposed to be a single woman pregnant. It doesn't deal with it as much as you might think. And actually, it kind of turns into a fairly traditional, conventional sort of love story. 
albeit one with um, an unhappy ending rather than a it ends up with boy gets girl. It's a really good film, but it's not pressing quite as many buttons as perhaps you might imagine it should have. Um, but that's just been released on Blu-ray with some lovely extras and in a nice restored 4K print. So, um, well worth it, I would say, if um, classic British films are your bag. Matt, I believe you've got a Blu-ray review for us this week. Oh, yes. What did I review? Oh, I, re- I viewed... What did I review? Oh, the Aki Kirismaki box set. 17 films. From a Finnish uh, film director. Who's still because the films. reason being, he's just announced that his most recent film was going to be his last and he was retiring. Ah, yes. So this is yeah. like his complete work. Yes, yeah, which is now on my, my shelves. Yeah. Um, he's, yeah, he's not for everybody, I think. So he tends to release quite short. Uh, he's mo- most famous for a trilogy of movies in the late 80s and 90s, which is called the Proletariat Trilogy. So really sort of almost kind of, it's got that feel of Eastern European sort of grimy socialist, but with sort of humour, but it's such dark humour that it's not funny, but quite profound. So there's a film called Ariel and the Match Factory Girl, and which of course then he's difficult sort of to watch, but, but he's, he's... Scandinavian. Yes, yes, so Finnish. Um, yeah, the, the more recent films are a bit lighter. He sort of moves away from Scandinavia. So Le Havre mm. is is quite a nice it's quite a nice sort of film about an elderly couple and the guy relies so much on his wife and she becomes fatally ill and then hides it from him. So there's a kind of a some comedy of errors based around that. So it's nice and really nicely shot and really sort of grounded in reality. But seventeen films is a lot. You have to be yeah, you have to be pretty dedicated to, to watch them all. But actually if you're one of these sort of cineast type people mm. who's got an interest in um uh, you know sort of world cinema and yes, stuff yeah. getting 17 films by Corey's Mackie all in one collection oh, yeah, is yeah yeah um, I mean the, those two films Ariel and the Match Factory Girl are in the top you know the the greatest Finnish movies ever made yeah, so yeah. if you want to understand them you watch the films that come before them and then if you've done that you might as well watch the rest of them Right, shall we move on? Okay. Um, in tenth place, then, is uh, on ten point three percent. This one may or may not be a surprise. The Curse of Fenric. Oh, it's not a surprise. I was going to say, if it's a surprise, it'd be a pleasant surprise. I think. It's a it's a surprise to me, but I'm quite pleased with it oh, because yeah. I yeah I didn't think that McCoy was going to get. It's a funny one because I don't necessarily enjoy it that much, but I can kind of tell that it's a game changer for Doctor Who. I can tell it's got that. It's one of those kind of leverage. I didn't yeah, think no. it was. I didn't think it was a game changer. I thought it was comforting. So I thought there's a series of stories in the McCoy era that are collectively mm. kind of groundbreaking, but because Fenric sort of ties them together with something more traditional. So yeah. it's not like well, it's, well, it's, it's, the same, it's the first yeah. one which kind of McCoy's Doctor carries that amount of weight. Mm. Well, the thing From about memory. the Curse of Fenric that strikes me is that it's the one where Ace meets her mother as a baby. Right, that's unprecedented in Doctor Who, right? Yeah, or was at the time, and nowadays it's 
you know, Stephen Moffat's late motif. So, yes. Yeah. So it's um, so in that respect, it is a big game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, aside from that, it does the. It has that Hinchcliffe Holmes sparkle. Yeah. It has that horror element, and it and in common with a lot of the McCoy stories, it has really good dialogue mm. being delivered by some really good actors. Yeah. And it has that in common with sort of both those things in common with Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Mm. I think that the last sort of two or three years of Doctor Who were. In that respect, the best two or three years beside the Hinchcliffe and Holmes years. Mm. I mean, obviously, the production values, the fact that it's all filmed on OB video yeah. makes it look horrible. But the production values for what money they had, could they, they make that? it look could spectacular. They, could they do that business of take, removing a frame from every second so it gets that filmic look to it? I wonder if that make well, it. they tried that with... Um, was it just light though, didn't they? No, they... They, they tried that with Planet of Fire and it looks horrible. Okay. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it looks bad anymore. Well, I'm sort of nostalgic for that look now because we've moved on from that. Yeah, yeah. I so it's it like kind of film... home spun because of it. Yeah. It looks it's... like a home video. Yeah. With really nice production value. But it's like it's like how we used to see the 70s with nostalgia as the, the film video combination now i'm seeing that sort of outside broadcast with yeah. slight nostalgia it doesn't sort of jar me anymore i still think ghost light's more interesting um yeah and i still i can still actually if i put it on i still get through ghost light more easily than i get through the curse, <clears> the curse <throat> of Fenric, i still get a little bit bored in the second episode maybe and then it picks up again um yeah no i don't find that i i like it I don't like the way it ends. I, I'm on record as saying this, but I don't mind the way it ends. Yeah, I think the ending is disappointing, but then again, it has that in common with lots and lots and lots of Doctor Who stories, and at least the Curse of Fenric. If I don't like the ending, at least the ending makes a kind of sense, and it's not the kind of disappointment that you get at the mm. end of, you know, Deadly Assassin, where he gets bundled into a hole, or mm. the Talons of Wang Chiang, where he gets bundled into a cupboard. Or see the doom where they just blow blow something, yeah, up, yeah. Blow something up. Or Pyramids of Mars where he gets bundled into a cupboard. Or the demons where they just blow up the church and then dance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, that's Is that a window into your black archive? <laughs> what, they blow up a church and then dance? Yeah, that's the final that chapter. Might be the fi- that, will be, that will be the final chapter, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but no, I'm. I was really quite pleased to see Curse of Fenric in the top ten. Because, I mean, it's one of those stories that in uh, surveys of a much wider number of people will sort of be a top 50 story, but will not be this high. Well, also, the the top 10, I thought, ran the risk of being the top 10 Holmes and Hinchcliffe stories with a few Perkleys mixed in. And yeah, you look at what we've seen already, Pyramids of Mars, Terror of the Zygons, Deadly Assassin and Ark in Space all ended up outside the top 10. So the top 10 here is... I mean, I said last week that there weren't going to be any surprises here, but actually, when I say there's not going to be any surprises, yeah, what I mean is the whole thing is perhaps not quite what no. you might expect. So what might happen at some point is that Holmes Hinchcliffe stories have split themselves, split the votes themselves. So yes. there's so many classic, there's so many good stories that people have like their favourites out of them, and it's just sort of spread that way, which <clears throat> allows well, room for. This is the thing. It, 
I only ask people for their top five mm. in common with all the other top tens I've done. Yeah. If you if people were naming their top ten, that gives you leave to put five Hinchcliffe and Holmes stories yeah. in there and yeah. five examples of other things you like. And then we're in an Ed Sheeran situation. Whereas if you only ask people for a top five, they think, well, God, I can only afford to put two Hinchcliffe and Holmes, yeah. otherwise yeah. I won't be able to put anything else. Yeah. So you're right, that does split the vote a bit mm. and allows for other things to come yeah. through. Um, speaking of which, in ninth position, on 10.9%, the Seeds of Doom. Okay. <laughs> Which might have ended up higher and actually was winning the poll for the first wow. sort of... For a while, at the start, as the votes came in, it was the one that was getting the most votes, and then it tailed off a bit. Mm. As the votes were coming in, there were some stories that weren't getting votes that I was expecting to, and other stories that were just like running away with it and I was thinking seriously is that going to win but you know we had so many votes in the end that things balanced out but still Seeds of Doom number 9 I think there's something about this story that's absolutely horrible but at the same time it's such a great entertainment and 6 episodes just fly by I think there's about 3 lines of dialogue that justify its place in the top 10 stories just that kind of just that kind of completely dark, sadistic humour. Oh, but dark, sadistic humour is not the only thing that justifies something as being Doctor Who now. Yeah. But Seeds of Doom also does that classic running around in the English countryside thing. And also it's got those first two episodes, which is like an isolated mm. base under siege. Yeah. So it's kind of an archetypal Doctor Who story in that it does just about everything that you'd expect yeah. From Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, except, as you say, I mean, I love it. I mean, it's a good but I love it in spite of the fact that I hate the fact that it's so violent and sadistic. It's such a good way of doing a six-parter. That that sort of two-parter yeah. followed by the four-parter, and because this is... you don't lose interest. I mean, mm. even well, well, we might get to it even with Talons. By no, that fell outside the top twenty. Episode five or six, you're sort of thinking, "Well, that was a joke." But well, we've <laughs> seen we've seen this before. Whereas Seeds of Doom, have you noticed how when Matt's halfway through a sentence, he won't stop for anything, including when I reveal that Talons of Wang Sharing fell outside the top twenty? No, I had a point to make. I just go ahead and make it. We weren't listening. We were talking about Talons of Wang Chang. I don't, I don't need you guys to listen. I'm talking to the microphone. I'm yeah, talking to the people It's okay, in my voice is louder. Oh, <laughs> God, you had to bring it up again. Um, <clears throat> oh, and also Seeds of Doom, of course. I mean, it goes without saying, but Seeds of Doom is Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you think about it, there aren't a great number of stories that are just those two, and yet those two are thought of as the classic team from the entire classic series so if you're going to choose a tom and liz as opposed to a john and liz or a tom liz and ian you've really only got a choice of about six stories Mm. and some of those stories frankly despite the fact that they've got great production values and great actors aren't exactly brilliant Mm. stories so seeds of doom was probably always going to do really well Yeah. yeah um in eighth place Maybe surprisingly low, on 11.6%, The Robots of Death. Okay. I mean, I've always thought of that as like a top three. Right. I mean, I don't think it's a terribly good story, hmm. but I think it's done 
so well. It's possibly the Doctor Who story from the classic series that is done the best in terms of direction, production design, acting, dialogue. I have this weird feeling that watching it at the time, it felt like this was a real... I don't know what the word is. It's just one of those stories that is... It's always stayed with me. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Right first viewing. I always equate it with Ark in Space. So I've never but, I've never said it's my favourite Doctor Who story, but Ark in Space Robots of Death have always been sort of the equivalent to me. But they're, And they're very similar in terms of what makes them great. So mm-hmm. the set design performances. Well, but the one thing that Robots of Death has going for it is this Art Deco thing and the robots. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and the, those robots. The design work is amazing. Yeah, yeah, mm. and the voice work that the actors do, the performances. Yes, yeah, because they're they're just. I mean, it is that. I mean, it's not quite that, but it is that uncanny valley thing. There's something about the whispering, quiet menace of the robots when they look as gorgeous as they do, mm-hmm. that just makes them absolutely terrifying, mm. and they really, really stick in your memory, like yeah. you say. I'm quite surprised to find it as low as that, frankly. It's definitely a top five story as far as I'm concerned. What number is it again? Eighth. Eighth. I mean, yeah, eighth is still high, but Mm. I mean, Robots of Death for me is just, you know, top three, really. Um, (coughs) In seventh place then, above Robots of Death, and I mean, it's a great story, but, you know, above Robots of Death is The War Games. Okay, okay. I mean, the War Games. That's my number one. Yeah, I absolutely adore the War Games. But if you're going to look at it objectively, it is a whole lot of running around. Yeah. Really getting very far, very fast. But I don't... It's a NaNoWriMo. But it's a miraculous... It's almost miraculous that I think 10 episodes, I'm going to get bored. And you never do. And it's it's just running around, I'm going to get bored. It's black and white, I'm going to get bored. They're clearly writing it on the hoof, I'm going to get bored. And I just don't get bored. And it's this sort of Dan Brown effect where you know, you know it shouldn't be well written, but every episode ends with something that pushes you into Absolutely. the next episode. And every episode develops something. I think I've said before, it's my first experience of binge watching. Yeah. yeah. Years ago when I first got loaned it on VHS, I just yeah. spent a day watching it. I had yeah. a weekend once where I was coming off an early shift and going on to a night shift. And so on the Sunday... Um, I'd been out on the Saturday night, so they're lying on the Sunday, and I thought, I need to get more sleep on the Sunday afternoon, otherwise I'm never going to make it through to Monday morning. I thought, I'll just bung on a VHS. This was back in the days before disc. I'll bung on a VHS, which has got four hours of black and white Doctor Who, and I am bound to nod off. Stupid me. Picked the war games, didn't I? (laughs) So, yeah, I didn't get any sleep that afternoon. But I enjoyed the hell out of watching it. Mm -hmm. Um... Yeah, it's it, I, and I think it's almost accidental the way it keeps throwing things in that keeps sort of moving yeah. the story yeah. on. It's almost as if there's no plotting or planning behind it at all, <laughs> but just oh my god, what do we need to do now mm. in and, order to keep these plates spinning? And as a regeneration story, so the regeneration stories after the war games all are framed as sort of these particular Mm. events like Planet of the Spiders, Legopolis, they're framed as something building to something else. The war game sort of does that almost by accident, that Mm -hmm. it just pounds you with this epic story. It's not supposed to be epic. It's obvious that they just, they 
like several stories fell through and they had to fill the space up with just 10 episodes but that the sort of scale of it mm. actually mm. actually fakes this kind of grand event and it works you, oh, yeah. you feel like the regeneration is earned by the end of it mm. especially yeah when you get to episode nine mm. when uh, i mean it's sort of start seeding a little bit before that. Yeah. When you get to episode nine and you start to think, well, hang on, Doctor's not going to be able to solve this, is he? Yeah. And really, to be honest, it's quite a trivial story. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's quite a trivial story. Yeah. And in other ways, it's one of those great classic stories that you think, oh, of course, Doctor Who had to do one of those. Yeah. If you're going to do alien adventures in time and space, of course, somebody somewhere is going to be assembling armies, right? Yeah. So it's one of those sort of classic type stories it's Troughton's greatest hits as well so he has that kind of whimsy at the beginning but towards the end when he realizes it's it's the warlords he really nails that kind of that kind of you feel that there is a threat and that goes right back to evil of the Daleks there's that kind of moment in evil of the Daleks which if it was actually on screen you'd feel that that you know that this was a big right um in sixth place, another McCoy Ooh. remembrance of the Daleks on 15%. So we're moving up by small increments, not so large ones as we normally have. Um, remembrance of the Daleks, I think... Hmm, see, I'm not the biggest fan of Remembrance of the Daleks. I admire it more than I enjoy it. I think it's great. I think there's a lot of great stuff in there. I think there's... I don't know, there's something in there that makes it less interesting a story for me than things like The Happiness Patrol and Ghost Light and even Paradise Towers. I think it's a bit, it feeds a little bit too heavily on the past of the series. But, I don't mind that. But actually, the set, the period setting, the, the, the use of racism as a kind of a, a, direct, mm. a direct sort of uh, parallel. Oh yeah, I and, think it's. Um, and I still think the 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 effect of the the ship landing where they just crane in a big ship. Oh that's, yeah, that's yeah. That's really that's, that's a really very good impressive. Moment. Oh yeah, there's lots of stuff in there to impress. Yeah. There's just just something about the story that doesn't quite. Mm. It's one of those ones where um, you know how some stories grab you and other ones just kind of go over you. Yeah, I've always found remembrance just kind of goes over me. Mm. Don't really know why, but I remember being really excited about the first episode, and then kind of it tailed off. So it tailed off. So that was yeah. that's an initial viewing when it was on. That, yeah, that, yeah, me and, too. And that first episode that I accidentally uh, recorded over with an episode of the Waltons, and then spent wow. a month trying to find another copy of it. That first episode, I remember my brother watching it with me, and my brother being excited because we watched season twenty-four, and at the time it had just sort of it had just fallen flat. Mm-hmm. And then there was this pre-title sequence of the spaceship coming towards the Earth, and you felt like there had been some sort of gear change yeah, in the series, yeah, yeah. and you felt like they were actually taking it seriously again. Mm, yeah. And then the the battle in Totter's Lane, and then the Daleks coming up the stairs. I mean, that first episode is well at is the time. Such, it's almost like a re a reboot of the series. Well, at the time, it felt like. Remembrance of the Daleks was the first proper Doctor Who story yeah. that we'd had for years. Yeah. And then the rest of the series afterwards seemed like this big disappointment. Mm. But then once they were out on VHS and I was rewatching them, it was always great a show and Happiness yeah. Patrol that I was getting mm. more out of rather than and nobody Remembrance. Watched, nobody watched them. No. <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, but they never took um, people who recorded into mm. account in those days. Yeah. So while they were getting viewing figures of like four or five million, it's probably actually nearer five or six. Mm. I suppose we'll never know. In fifth place, mm-hmm. we're into the top five. And in fifth place, the Caves of Androzani. Okay. On 16.6%. Well, that is... That old nugget. Yeah, but it is quite a bit lower in our poll than it generally is, because even in polls of all of Doctor Who, it's mm. usually top three or four. And this is was... Is that our influence? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, no, I don't I, think so. I, 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 I think, think not. If people are listening to the Blue Box podcast, they're listening... With their own opinions I, intact, I, yeah, not to have their opinions full. No, I'm just saying but that that is generally a thing as far as we're concerned. Is that Androzani is I hate using that word overrated. It's not that. It's just it's as Matt was saying earlier about the way the voting splits over things like the Hinchcliffe and Holmes years. The voting is magnetized towards Caves of Androzani because mm. there's nothing in that period. Like the quality. Mm. Um, Dot Two magazine, though, every year it, it tops the poll, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there or thereabouts. Um, it's, a, it's an, access, an accessible story. Mm. It's not like Kinder or Snake Dance or, you know, it's, Kinder, it's a story that, you know. By the way, came 22nd. It was only just outside the top 20. Yeah. Really but I'm, thinking, yeah, of, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of the magazine poll. So when, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when you get a large number, a much larger number of people voting mm. than something like Caves, you're more likely to see clips from Caves of Androzani on a sort of compilation clip show than you are of Kinder. <laughs> I so tell you what. All sort of grabbable images. And, I tell you what, Caves of Androzani's got. A lot of Doctor Who fans obviously like the serious ones more than they do the silly ones. But Caves of Androzani, as well as being this gritty Blake Seven type thing, also has one of the cameras, one of the cameras, one of the characters looking to camera and mm. delivering his dialogue, which is that quirky thing that makes you think <coughs> there's more to <coughs> it than just the grim and gritty. Yeah. So it's grim and gritty with this edge of satire, mm. yeah. which is enforced by the character who turns to the camera and talks. Mm. So I, I, <coughs> by no stretch of the imagination is it in any way not a very good story. Mm. I don't think it's a very typical Doctor <coughs> Who story. No. I mean, that's what we've always said. <coughs> no. mm. <coughs> is it the whole Empire Strikes Back effect? Which isn't really a very yeah, Star yeah. Warsy film, is it? I don't like The Empire Strikes Back all that much. I mean, I like it, yeah. but, I, but I much, much, much prefer Star Wars. It's a weird thing. I, if people said, what's your favourite Star Wars film? I'd say Empire Strikes Back. But when I watch it, I weirdly lose interest. Yeah. But if I was to think about which one's my favourite, I think Empire, because it's because of the settings and because the design works. Well, it's a better... <laughs> I think it's a better film. It's, it's a better <coughs> yeah, quite possibly. film. But I'm not. I don't think I'm a Star Wars fan. I think mm. I think I like Star Wars as an idea, and I like the toys. But I'm not a Star Wars fan, so I look at them as individual films mm. rather than rather than Doctor Who, which I look at as a sort of a concept <laughs> or an ever evolving. I mean, I, yeah, I being a fan, I like the dynamic of it because I like the fact that heroes all of a sudden 
nasty things are happening to but them. But if you look at Empire, mm. the first 60 minutes is set up for the second 60 minutes, and the second 60 minutes is set up for the third film. Yeah. So you get to the end of Empire Strikes Back, and you've just watched two hours of setting things up. Yeah, it's actually a conduit, isn't it, between hmm. yeah. between places. And I, and I think it's very unsatisfying. The Yoda stuff is great, but yeah. I like the Cloud City stuff. Yeah, that's nice. beautiful. That's more amazing. And that's basically the whole thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the Hoth. Yeah, there's an hour on Hoth and then an hour on... Yeah. And there's a quick detour to the um, the asteroid with the head in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Space worm. Uh, we should be talking about the case of Androzani. I mean, it's got great performances. You can't really argue with it. Yeah. I'm glad it's not higher than fifth, but I, I would have been... When I was... When the votes were coming in, by the time we'd got about a third of the votes in, it was in last place of all the stories that had been voted for. Mm. And then it came in very strong as more votes came in to bring it up into the top five. But it did look like there'd be a real shock and it wouldn't be in the top ten for a while. Um, So, uh, but I I think it deserves to be in the top ten. But I'm glad it's not higher because I think the stories above it are better. Speaking of which... The very best one of all is in <laughs> fourth place <laughs> on 16.9%. Ultimate, is it the ultimate foe? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> it's a different kind of ultimate okay. and it's a different kind of foe. Okay. It's a foe from the future. It's the talents of Wen Chiang. Okay. <clears throat> My favourite. Yeah. Because it does the... It's cohesive, isn't it? It's just... Well, what I really like really about it, and again, it's sort of... It sounds like it should be atypical because it's what I like about it is just the Victorian setting and not the sci-fi stuff at all. In fact, there's very little sci-fi stuff in it, yeah. really. I mean, it is atypical, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because but in its yeah. atypicality, it's kind of typical because that is kind of what Doctor Who very often does. Ghostlike being another great example, sort of. Yeah. Well, it's <clears> it's, it's become. Oh, I don't know. It feels typical now because it's such a good story and such a strong story and so well regarded. But there's a history throughout Doctor Who of these and they're sort of, they're they're in fits and starts. Mm. But but Doctor Who is about blending trips to the past with trips to the future. And so the sort of faux historicals, the pseudo historicals, are the ones where you get the whole Doctor Who experience, because you get the history and you get the sci-fi. And while there's slightly less sci-fi in Talons of Wen Chiang, it's still there. So it kind of, in its atypicality, is actually more typical than most other stories. So that that balances classic Doctor Who. Yeah. But the trappings, the fact that the Doctor, the, the motivation of the Doctor and the look of the Doctor... And the way he moves through the story, that's quite unlike any other Doctor Who story. It sort of is. Sort of the Doctor on holiday. But Doctor Who's antecedents are in late Victorian (coughs) and early Edwardian fiction. So actually going back and doing a story set in late Victorian times doesn't make it typical. No. But makes it something that's looking to its roots. Yes, yeah. And the Doctor uses a gun. Or shows real pleasure well, in using yeah. a gun, but that doesn't disturb me for some reason. That works. Well, it's like well you say, it feels it's a pastiche. It feels like the doctor's very comfortable, yeah, and knows exactly how to behave within that mm. 
In some so think in that respect, it's immersive. It's almost like he's on a, you know, uh, like uh, like you say, a holiday, like a holiday type thing, where he's yeah. going in and almost playing a role. So he's like, oh, I mean, in some ways, it's like Seeds of Doom in that sense. So Seeds of Doom, the final four episodes, it's the Doctor in Get Carter, mm. basically like breaking heads, cracking heads, yeah. and using a gun. This is the Doctor Who is the Doctor in a Fu Manchu story, yeah, with like a blunderbuss mm. and dressed in the way he is, and actually investigating. So it's Fu Manchu, Sherlock Holmes, and that's that sort of maybe that's something the Tom Baker Doctor Gets should away. be doing and more. Actually, I mean, that feeds into like the Snowman, yeah, when the Doctor takes that time out where he just yeah. says, "I'm not being the Doctor anymore." Mm. That's where yeah. he goes. That's his comfortable place. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think any other doctor would get away with it than Tom Baker, as Colin Baker found out. No, and there's yeah, not been yeah, a Colin yeah. Baker story in this top 20, and I don't no. think we're going to get one now. Actually, have a quick What's look. What's the highest rated doctor, Colin Baker? Well, I'm just looking down the list and seeing if I can find one. <coughs> Maybe the two um, doctors? Yeah, no, it's oh. Revelation of the Daleks, and it is in roughly... Somewhere between 35 and 40. I can't be bothered okay. to actually That's count. That's probably fair, I think. <laughs> That's his highest rated well, story. In, in his defence, he didn't make that many. And uh, and they weren't very good. <laughs> so, Well, so. if you count um, Trial as four separate stories, he yes. pretty much made as many as um, Sylvester McCoy. Yes, but I mean, the disadvantage with the Colin Baker stories is they're not very good. Well, yeah. So, you know, he's he basically just screwed from the beginning. Because Should we do our top three? Yeah. Uh, anybody want to guess what came in third? I, I think it's really it. obvious what the top three is now. But then maybe if you've so not been taking Genesis? Um, in third place, on 19.7%, so it's a bit of a jump up from Talons of Wang Chang, is Inferno. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. excellent. Yeah, mm. good. Excellent. Good. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> No, because I don't. I think I would. I would hope it would get into the top ten, but certainly not that high. But it, obviously, it's got far more respect than it had. This weird, this weird sudden jump in the polls, like it was sort of. And, and I'm sure it wasn't the. It may have been the video release. But I think it was. But mm. suddenly, it just went straight into the top ten of the polls. It was because prior, it was seven episodes. John Pertwee after two other seven-episode stories, mm. and it was all set in one building, essentially. Yeah. And until people saw it, and actually, going back to what I was saying earlier about hearing decent actors delivering the dialogue in a way that makes it lodge in your memory. Inferno is one of those stories where, before I put it on, I'll think, oh, can I sit through seven episodes of this? But then I'll put put it on and be immersed in it mm. and the time will fly away same as it does with the war games I don't like Inferno as much because I don't think it's got as much to offer as the war games but <coughs> going back to what we were saying about Caves of Androzani about Doctor Who fans liking their more serious Doctor Who stories that's what Inferno does mm. it has this thing where it starts off with uh, the Doctor saying right if you do this it's going to be Armageddon and that thing happens. Mm. And then you've got six episodes then of the Doctor 
being on the edge of Armageddon and having to stop it. And it just ratchets up the tension mm. from the first episode to the last without any let-up. So it just keeps on... It, it's one of those stories that just keeps on exacerbating the I, same threat. I think it could have been a serial in its own right. I don't think it, it could have been... <clears throat> it wouldn't take a lot to make that a non-Doctor Who story. Yeah, It actually, feels like a piece of classic BBC drama from the 70s, really. Well, it's got a... In some ways, it's got a similar story to Random Quest by John Wyndham. In the... Uh, in Random Quest... I mean, in Random Quest got a completely different plot but the thing that it has in common is in random quest this guy accidentally gets transported into an alternative Mm. earth falls in love with somebody she dies because she's got a heart condition then he gets transported back into our world and he has to find her and save her before she dies of the same heart condition get her to hospital so because she doesn't know she's got (coughs) this thing wrong with her right same thing happens in Inferno. He goes into the alternative world, finds out what does happen when um, Stallman goes through with his thing, mm. and then has to come back and save the day in the last episode. And like you're saying, it ratchets up, but then Pertwee really sells it in a yes. way that this is the point where Pertwee becomes a distinctive doctor. This isn't something that you'd see. So Troughton in Inferno would have been something completely yeah, different. Yeah, yeah, Whereas with Pertwee, Definitely. you have running around sweating kind of... Almost at the edge. I mean, that that moment in the final episode, he's almost, you almost, even though you've seen him see the end of the world and you can understand what he's doing, he's almost lost control at the end of that when he starts smashing the computer up with the the wrench. It's funny, going back to something you said earlier, there is almost like this lack of connection between Pertwee and the the audience. Mm. Kind of an impersonal thing where he's just there doing a job, yeah. and actually that works really well for the story. Yes, yeah. And so like there are say, certain moments when it, it yeah. does work, I think. Um, yeah, it's a bit like Seeds of Doom in that it's one that I really enjoy, in spite of there being things about it that I really don't like. Yeah. Um, I mean, see, I remember the Target novel coming out when I was getting Doctor Who magazine back then, and uh, I don't remember there being a big. No, it was, late, to it, at all. it was a late target. Yeah. And it wasn't a particularly well written Terence Dick's target. And it was the VHS that did it. When the VHS came out, yeah. people actually re- got that mm. sense of the building tension. And of course, it's um, Doug Camfield did the exteriors, but yeah. Barry Letts did the interiors, but from Doug Camfield's camera script with mm. Doug Camfield's cast. And half the job of the director is getting the cast right. Yeah. So yeah. once Doug Camfield had got all the people that he wanted and they knew what he wanted them to do, essentially Barrelets just came in and pointed the cameras at them. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm belittling his contribution, but it is a Doug Camfield story and it feels like one in spite of the fact that Barrelets is actually in the seat for the interiors. Of course, the other thing is the Doctor Who's Mirror Mirror. Yeah. as in the Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. In second place is on 23.4%, another leap in terms of the spread, in terms of how big the spread is, is City of Death. Um, I've only got one word for this, glorious. It's in my top three. I just adore it. Oh, stop drinking your nose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I didn't like it to start with because I found the running through streets in Paris not to be charming but to be sort of interminable. Then I got into it 
And now I'm starting to sort of think, well, I'm a bit city of death down. Hey, we're here to celebrate the top ten stories, Matt, not I know, piss all over I'm their wor- fire. I'm worried about what's going to be number one now. Oh, well, I know what's number one. We <laughs> no, all know guess, what's number yeah, one. Yeah, we all know what's number one. Um, but no, it's really good dialogue. And those, those... It's not just really good dialogue. It's got a brio about it in the direction. And the casting is phenomenal. And that cast do absolute wonders. This is the thing about City of Death, is that you can put a script in front of a cast. And you can put the same script in front of another cast. And you can put the same script in front of a third cast. And you give that script to three different directors... And they'll do three different readings on it, and one of them will treat it very seriously. One lot will treat it very frivolously. One lot might be very eccentric with it, do something maybe a bit whatever. In City of Death, everybody in that cast is giving readings of that dialogue that aren't necessarily there on the page to be read that way. But finding a truth in that dialogue mm. that sings, City of Death absolutely sings. And it sings because those performances are good. It's, like, it's the thing I like about Stanley Kubrick films. In a Stanley Kubrick film, the dialogue itself oftentimes is dreary. But it's the performances he gets out of the people who will bring something to that dialogue that is a way away from what real life would give you. It's so... What's the word I'm looking for when something... is so artificial. Affected. It is affected, yeah, and artificial. (coughs) And yet, because everybody's doing it, it becomes the logical universe for that dialogue to exist within. And I think the same thing happens in City of Death. Yeah, it's like David Lynch. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not saying no, a lot no, of people no. do do that. Yeah, and it's I varying think, degrees yeah. of success. And I think in terms of Doctor Who, City of Death is the most successful iteration of that kind of thing. And it's got some, which is also, by the way, why I like the Happiness Patrol. Bizarre ideas as well. So it's just this sort of. I mean, <clears throat> the only Douglas Adams can do this kind of well, and Bob Baker, Dave Martin, maybe this kind of. Idea after idea after idea, this sort of stream of kind of bizarre. But for once, they he brings together. them home. Yeah, and the punch that um, Duggan throws mm. that saves the entire history of the entire planet <laughs> is it's the forty-two moment, isn't it? <coughs> yeah, and it really works. And unlike forty-two, where forty-two has become this classic catchphrase that means absolutely nothing. The punch is this classic moment that just shows that for all the cleverness, sometimes you just have to throw a punch to win the day. Yeah. So it kind of does have an inherent meaning behind it as well. It's not about the punch itself. It's about the fact that intellect... It's a story about the battle between intellect and brawn. And essentially it's saying that intellect can only take you so far, but you need the combination of both things to actually win the day. Hmm. Um, Okay, we know what's coming at number one. It's on 28.4%. It's coming at number one by enough of a distance. But I'm going to read something first. Okay. Matt's gone off and fallen asleep already. No, no, I'm listening. 
With unlimited Extellium, we could totally annihilate the Daleks, and I had no doubt we would. But did we have that right? If we destroyed them, what made us better than them? Did the very existence of the Daleks in the universe have some greater meaning? It was certainly only the menace of the Daleks that had welded the new worlds into a single unit. The peoples of all planets had stopped warring against one another to unite and battle against a common enemy. With the Daleks gone, would the fighting between ourselves start again? That, <clears throat> a lot of which will have seemed familiar from the script of Genesis of the Daleks, was from the short story that was published in the Radio Times in 1973 to celebrate Doctor Who's 10th anniversary that was written by Terry Nation. Genesis of the Daleks, <clears throat> there is this common long-held fan belief that all the good bits of Genesis the Daleks came from Robert Holmes. Absolute bollocks. Robert Holmes was writing Revenge of the Cybermen at the time. Barry Letts commissioned and then recommissioned after Terry Nation turned up with a storyline that was the same as Planet of the Daleks and Death of the Daleks. Barry Letts commissioned Genesis the Daleks. What is so special about Genesis of the Daleks is that Barry Letts has got something out of Terry Nation that he didn't think he'd get out of Terry Nation, but it's a Barry Letts script, a Barry Letts story, and a Philip Hinchcliffe production. So you've got David Maloney directing it, as well as he would go on to direct things like The Deadly Assassin and Talons of Wang Chang. You've got a slight influence from Robert Holmes, because in spite of the fact that he was working on The Ark in Space and Revenge of the Cybermen, he's still there, nudging things. You've got Terry Nation egged on to do something slightly better than he's done before, and he takes all the things he's done before, and he says, look, I might not be able to get away with just regurgitating them, but maybe if I regurgitate them and just work a little bit harder at it and sprinkle a little bit of icing on it, I could get away with doing that. <clears throat> who in their right mind thought that the guy who played the Weasley plastics factory owner from, is it Terror of the Autons or Spearhead? It's Terror of the Autons, isn't mm, it? Michael yeah. Wishes in. Who in their right mind thought that the Weasley guy from Terror of the Autons would be the right guy to put under the Davros mask? But what a decision. Mm. That's what makes Genesis. David Maloney directing Michael Wisher in something that Barry Letts thought was worth making and Philip Hinchcliffe threw the weight of his production behind. You can turn your nose up at it, but Genesis of the Daleks is the absolute synthesis of Doctor Who doing something silly with seriousness and doing something silly with a bit of... doing something serious frivolously enough to make it watchable. That's why... The general public remember that above all other stories. That's why Doctor Who fans vote, and in this instance have again, voted that higher than all other stories. Because it's the best of all worlds insofar as Doctor Who's concerned. It's not my favourite Doctor Who story. I don't think for many, many, many people it's probably their favourite story. But it's close enough to being everybody's favourite story that it's always going to win polls, or at least be in the top three, because there just isn't 
anything that's as well loved, regarded, and respected as Genesis of the Daleks. Uh, so now you're going to disagree with me. No, it's all right. So <laughs> three, three characters travel from one dome to another, and step, yeah, and it's step, got all of that. Step in a giant clam. I think it's. I think you're right that it's really well directed, <clears throat> and I think you're probably right that Terry Nation wrote those speeches. Th- 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 those speeches. I could say and they are. They are high points. There are low points in the story, and it does. Oh, there are. It does drag, and there's. A lot of running from between the two things, and the the world it's set in doesn't quite cohere. It's got this feel of being very ciphered world. But, so you've got these two <clears throat> these two great nations in conflict, linked by a sewer. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And I've I've never quite managed to picture this as a viable world. It's a bit like the Armageddon factor. In, it's a in metaphor. The the, yeah, in the but, same way as. But it's a metaphor played like it's a real. World, so they're going for. Well, it this feels like of... the Doctor's daughter, where they're this, this two, yeah, yeah. two factions that are within very short distance of each other. Yeah, yeah. and it, but it feels like they want to go for a really real, authentic feeling world. But it that's what I mean quite... about doing something silly with enough seriousness but, to sell yeah, it. But it doesn't quite sell it because of the because of the the way they move the characters around the world. But you know, the direction works. Those those uh, those moments work. The performance of Davros works. Going back to the speeches just for a second, one other note is that the most famous speech is the sort of, if I had Mm. this virus and this file and the conjectural speech is something that turns up in every Terry Nation story. Ian does it at the end of episode four of the Daleks with the Thals. Um, The Doctor does it with Mm. Taron and Rebek in Planet of the Daleks. That is the one that more than any other people think Robert Holmes wrote. And yet, if you look at the actual mechanics of that dialogue, that's Terry Nation. There's no question of it in my mind. No question whatsoever. It's the way it's delivered by Michael Wisher that makes it sound like something else. Mm. Um, I've got nothing else to say about Genesis. It's one of those stories that is the first Doctor Who story that really terrified me. And... You know, I've been scared enough of giant spiders and giant maggots, but Genesis of the Daleks was the one that absolutely terrified me <coughs> as a kid. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those ones that's lived in many forms, that's never gone out of people's minds. Like you were saying about Inferno, other stories sort of come up and go down in estimation, mm. that come in and out of fashion. Genesis of the Daleks, everybody recognises it for its faults now, but still loves it in spite of it, and it's never gone out of fashion, I don't Mm, think. mm. Uh, I wasn't remotely surprised it won, to be frank, and I was rather glad it did over some of the other stories, because I think it would have been... You know, I'm not saying that those other stories weren't worthy of being in the top ten, but to be honest, I think Genesis is probably the only one that really deserves to win the poll. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's something that would fluctuate over time. You know, we couldn't do the same poll next year; it would probably still come to the top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where did the demons come? Um, demons didn't do as well as I thought it would, but it's there, just outside the top thirty, or okay. about in thirtieth okay. place. Probably about right. I like the demons. I think it should I have like been top the, twenty. I like, I like the demons, but that's but then, well reflective of 
where it is in currently in people's yeah. hands. But then I say archive is released and then obviously it'll it'll be really down to about four uh, up to about yeah. But then I look at it and I think there's about fifty stories that should be in the top twenty. So you know what can you do? Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, Let's do another film review. I was going to say let's go through some of these other ones that are on the list, but I tell you what, I don't usually do this, but I'll publish the entire list on Facebook about a week after this podcast podcast goes out so if you want to see the list um i'll publish the entire thing and i'll tell you now then because you you probably wonder what the hell the list is looking like i also made notes of how many people voted for each story because i figured when i started i wasn't expecting as many people to vote and i figured that the way to differentiate them might be not just how many points they got but how many people had voted Mm -hmm. because i figured if one person voted something in first place out of their top five and five people voted another story in fifth place out of their top five, then the one that got votes from five people probably deserved a higher spot than the one that just got top place from one, seeing as they were both top fives. So these were all stories that people really liked. So I'm saying... I didn't consider there was as much difference between first place and fifth place as there was between more people voting. So there is also marked on the list the number of people who voted for each story. Um, last film I had to review was Annabelle Creation, which is the latest one in the um, Conjuring series, mm-hmm. which I thought actually was... Maybe even the best one in the series. It's supposed to be. I've heard that. Yeah, I think so. I I mean, they're good films. Mm. I think after the first one, there's a what can we do with this mm. question being asked. Do we just go over the same ground or do we try and find something else? Uh, another way of doing it. And I think particularly the first Annabelle film mm. kind of lost its footing in looking to do something slightly different and yeah. didn't quite succeed. Annabelle Creation, I think, does find some slightly different way of doing it. I mean, there's nothing in that film that you've not seen in dozens of films before. Mm. But I think the way they put it together is probably the best. And although you can't really say the characters are well-written and well-developed, because it's a horror film, they're a lot better written and a lot lot better developed than you usually get in horror films. Mm. So, as I phrased it in my review, it actually gives you a notion of what it is you should care about, rather than just sticking something in front of you and then trying to frighten you. Mm -hmm. So, actually, it's a film with a bit more of a spine than a usual horror film, which is generally all about the scares. So, I thought it was a very good film, actually. It was better than I was expecting it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do have one more review to do before we go, which is an audio review, which is a short trip from Big Finish, which is a 30-minute story, a narrated story, narrated by Matthew Waterhouse, called The Ingenious Gentleman Adric of Alsarius. I'm not going to spoil what it's about. When it starts, you'll be thinking, what the hell is going on? But about halfway through, you'll still be thinking, what the hell is going on? You'll be probably thinking I'm really enjoying this but this is not Doctor Who and this is not going to make any sense and then at the end it kind of makes sense in the most obvious Doctor Who way and you'll just say wow that was great 
You may see the end coming. You may not. <clears throat> How did Matthew Waterhouse do? I was just about to go on and talk about Matthew Waterhouse. His reading style is so different from what you'd expect from a sort of big Finnish reader. He's like light years away from somebody like Nicholas Briggs. But actually, for about the first minute, I was thinking, oh my God, is he going to do it like this? But from a minute in, I was just looking forward to every sentence. (laughs) He's got this reading style. He's he's really good. It's just... You don't expect that reading style on a Doctor Who story, mm. but his reading style absolutely suits it. Mm. And the sound design and the music and everything else, it's all slightly at odds with what you'd expect from Doctor Who. But once the story gets going, and you're thinking, no, everything fits <coughs> perfectly. Yeah. And then once you get to the end and you find out what it's all about, well, the whole thing just totally adds up i gave it 10 out of 10 i just thought it was absolutely gorgeous and i would i mean i can't remember whether it's like something like 199 or 299 on the big finish website for the download because it's just half an hour go out do it Mm. and i tell you the one thing that really leaped out at me listening to this is if anybody on doctor who in 1980 had cared at all Adric could have been a brilliant character and Matthew Waterhouse could have been a brilliant actor. Mm. But nobody cared. And they wrote this character. They came up with a they came up with a concept for the character and then they changed their minds. Mm. So they're left with an origin story for a character that changes mm. and nobody then knows what to make with the character. Nobody really takes Matthew Waterhouse under their wing and sort of you know, walks him through the process. So he's left floundering, the character's left floundering, and Adric's become this big joke. Listen to this, and you can just hear what could have been back in 1980, and it would have been wonderful. Mm. Uh, Go out and buy it. I mean, it's so cheap, you cannot sort of turn your nose up at it. Right, next week... We are going to be getting back into our, um, going through the Stephen Moffat, Matt Smith stories. We did series five. We're going to do series six next year. But at the halfway point between series five and series six is a Christmas special. So I've timed this for this week. Mm -hmm. So now it's December. We'll watch A Christmas Carol and talk about that. Then after that, we're going to do some kind of a preview of the Christmas special. And then it's Christmas. Wow. Yeah. So until next week then, I was JR. I was Matt. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Uh-huh.